90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Uh, just loving this lovely weather that we've been having. Uh, spent a lot of days in the field this weekend, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's warmed up a little bit here, but I spent the entire weekend in the lab, as usual. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you know, there's like this whole thing, like where the rocks live. Do you know what that is? <laughs> Some kind of planet thing. <laughs> it uh, doesn't make any difference to your modeling, I guess. Yeah, and I'm, I'm using pure quartz, what is really in all faults in my experiments. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I've experienced in, in the field as well, pure quartz faults. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I'm excited for today because we've got a, a special guest with us. Yay! So everybody say hi to the infamous listener, Hannah. Hannah Rabinowitz is with us. How are you today? Great. How are you guys? <laughs> I didn't know we were allowed to say your last name. I thought it was Hannah, last name redacted. Oh, yes. I think that was just on the first time I commented. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, you're, you're out now. I hope that's okay. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, it's been about a year because, believe it or not, I think we've been doing this over a year now. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Anna, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Um, so, I'm a graduate student at Columbia University. Um, I did my undergrad at WashU in St. Louis, um, and I've actually been doing rock mechanics for most of that time. Um, so, that's actually how I met John. I'm sorry. You're a rock mechanicist. I'll just apologize. <laughs> yep. The whole world is quartz, I know. You know, it's it's two against one here. I know. Quartz it's, and it's... olivine. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we don't go for those minerals uh, <laughs> on my side of the uh, sedimentary spectrum. <laughs> well, hey, and we got to go for four shows. Ice is also a mineral. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh. <laughs> I know you'd find a way to tie it in. Almost, there we go. Almost seamlessly. <laughs> So what are you doing now specifically in terms of rock mechanics? Um, so now at Columbia, my research is focused on um, understanding earthquakes and specifically looking at earthquakes um, and seismic slip that happens in the shallowest part of subduction zones. Um, so, so I do that actually with like two different methods. So one of them is focused on looking at chemical signatures in faults um, to look at uh, when faults get really hot during earthquakes. And then the other one is also doing um, experiments in the lab, so deforming rocks. Do you have a... I see, I see on your website you focus on the Japan Trench. Is that your favorite subduction zone? Yeah, so um, <laughs> the first part of my thesis is focused on um, the Tohoku earthquake, which was the magnitude 9 earthquake in Japan in 2011. Um, so yeah, so that's that's one of the really interesting um, subduction zones that has been studied a lot recently. Excellent. But we're not going to talk about any of that today, right? <laughs> no, we'll save that for a future show. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so today we wanted to talk about outreach and all kinds of fun things like that because you and I have done the uh, Keeping Geology Alive pop-up session at AGU for the last couple years, and I know that we both really like outreach, and uh, Shannon also enjoys doing all kinds of fun activities with kids when they come through, so we thought this would be a fun thing to chat about. 
yeah, I think it's really important. Yeah. So other than doing a few things at AGU, you've been involved with a really cool project uh, up at Columbia. So could you tell us what that's all about? Um, yeah. So I actually am involved with a few outreach uh, projects at Columbia. Um, so one of them is a project that uh, one of my advisors uh, has started um, where it's called um, the Sounds of Seismology um, project. And we basically try to explain earthquakes and seismic waves by uh, sonifying uh, seismograms so that people can actually hear seismic waves passing through the earth and try to understand the information that they're giving us that way. Um, so that's actually been developed as a presentation in the Natural History Museum in New York. Um, and then I'm also involved with a project called Girl Science Day at Columbia University. And we um, basically do science demos in a wide range of STEM fields, um, really hands-on demos for middle school girls in New York to try to get them excited about science. That is something that is very near and dear to me, obviously. I know we've talked about it a lot on this show. Um, and since you're a avid listener, I'm sure you <laughs> remember talking about that. Um, because it's such, like, an important age, I think. You know, people get to college. And so often with geology, like, they take a class and they get excited about it. But, you know, there's a disconnect way down the line, way far away from college. So that's super awesome work. Um, I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about that and like how how everyone reacts to that. I mean, what are your favorite experiments to do? Like, what do they really get excited about? Um, people or the girls always get the most excited about the experiments that they get kind of messy <laughs> during. <That's awesome>. So, <laughs> um, so in terms of earth science experiments, we have had, um, a jello fracking experiment a few years <laughs> where we take uh, jello cups and you use a little pipette to inject colored juice into them so you can kind of see how the fluid can cause uh, fracturing and things like that. And so, of course, the jello ends up like in people's hair, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's so that's awesome. always a good one. Um, we also do a trash can volcano demo. Um, so we end up with exploding balls and stuff everywhere. <laughs> Everyone loves big booms. Oh, that's super stellar. Uh, yeah, and Is then, of the... course, the non-geology demos as well. But <laughs> We don't care about those. <laughs> don't care about those. <laughs> Is the trash can one the basically dry ice bomb? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then they put also just uh, little golf balls and uh, different like sizes and uh, weights of balls so they can... Uh, show just different kind of injecta. So you um, have golf balls flying around the room. <laughs> <laughs> we do it outside. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> one of the one of the profs here does that for his intro volcanology class. Oh, seriously! Uh, every, every semester. And last semester, he got a little too excited, and the trash can itself was destroyed <gasps> yes. in the process. One of those big industrial Rubbermaid trash cans. Oh, that's uh, awesome. It was a lot of fun. We actually recorded it with a seismometer. It was <laughs> seriously. Do they do yeah. it outside? Yeah. I mean, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> We're so hypersensitive around here. I don't know if that would work out very well. We'd probably get the cops called on us or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, recently there um, there were some seismic signals in New York that everyone was worried about there being an earthquake, but it was actually just a sonic boom. You uh, see that in the news? 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People yeah. get yep. nervous when things shake. Yes, they get super scared. <laughs> <laughs> we have an Air Force base around here, and it happens a lot. Every time on the news, they're like, mysterious booms, and the next day, yeah, it was the Air Force. Okay. <laughs> so how often do you do these Girl Science Day demos? Um, so we actually do them once a year, um, usually in November. Uh, and then there's a, another organization at Columbia that does a smaller version of the Girl Science Day um, demos a few times a year. Um, so when we do it, we usually have about 150 girls come. So it's quite a production. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's so how many people, I mean, if you've got 150 girls coming through, it's a lot of logistics. And how many people are involved in this thing? <laughs> um, so we have about four uh, people, more or less, on the board every year uh, running it. And then we end up with maybe 80 uh, graduate student volunteers doing logistics and then also running the demos oh great so yeah it's a big endeavor (laughs) yeah it is um i've done like sort of small um after school programs but i've never done anything on that kind of scale so (laughs) it's a lot of jello too really yeah yep (laughs) (laughs) you know when we have classes of 20 people come through the lab it seems overwhelming so i can't imagine yeah 150 we just we just bought uh, last year about one of those big river tables uh, from EM River, and it's like you can only stick ten people in our little basement room that it lives in. <laughs> That's it. So you just have all these kids like milling around out in the hallways. <laughs> yeah, we actually we usually rotate the girls through different experiments so that it's smaller groups, and that way they can get more hands-on time. But yeah, yeah, because yeah. you don't want to be the hundred fiftieth person in the back. Of the- <laughs> exactly, get the tiniest cup of Jello. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, we ran out. <laughs> so you're also involved in another project up there, right? That's a, a pretty new endeavor. Yeah. So um, this is actually going to be the third year that we've done this. Um, it's called Research as Art. Um, so this is a program that we started at uh, Lamont at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, which is kind of the geology branch of Columbia. Um, and we have every year a gallery type exhibition of um, research figures, um, kind of in an artistic framework. So, yeah. When you told me about this at first, I was like, this is an incredible idea. <laughs> I think it's, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> I think it's really cool, and I wish more places did it. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about where this idea came from to start with? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, I did some rock mechanics research in my undergrad, and part of that was looking at microstructures of rocks. So basically, we take a rock that we've deformed um, and cut it into a really thin slice, and then we can look at it under a microscope. And so when you do that, you see all of these really cool shapes and textures that form in the rocks when they're deformed. And I just love doing that work. And part of the reason I loved it so much is that all of those pictures that you make under the microscope are so beautiful. Um, And I just thought it was really a pity that people who aren't uh, scientists or don't look at thin sections of rocks all the time don't get to see those. Um, And I thought it would be a really cool way to get people excited about the research Um, So so yeah, so then I came to Columbia and also just reading other types of papers and seismology and things like that just 
figures that are really beautiful, um, even if you don't really know anything about the research behind them, are in most papers that you read. So it's a really great opportunity to make the research exciting for everyone. Uh, I absolutely agree because, like, it seems almost obvious when you do a lot of thin section work. You know, when you cut these, uh, for those of you that, you know, aren't geologists, um, a lot of what we do is take little 20 micron thick slices of rocks, so super tiny, and, you know, stick them under a microscope. And I will say quartz is pretty boring, but olivine makes beautiful colors. Quartz is beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) But I do do agree, olivine is awesome, too. Oh, yeah. That's actually... The background on my phone is actually a thin section of an olivine, a deformed olivine grain. So, oh my gosh! Oh, so it is. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so it it almost seems obvious. Like it's almost like you're actually looking at art. I feel like when you're looking um, down a microscope, and the same thing for like a scanning electron microscope. So these are much smaller. Um, I'm sure you guys use those, too, to look at deformation. Yeah. Um, we're talking, like, 10 microns across. And, um, you know, we put rocks in there all day long. And they are just – it's beautiful. It's really cool. It's stuff that you would never see with your naked eye. And we had – we just got a scanning electron microscope here. And, actually, the guy that set it up brought a piece of a record, a broken record in. And he stuck it in there. And so we're looking at, like, the micron scale on this record. And he was taking pictures for his son, who was, like, a record producer. So he was going to use it as art for his kid. It was, And he was using it to calibrate our machine. It was kind of cool. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It was really awesome. Like, the little grooves and, like, all the stuff that had fallen in between the grooves. And it was really neat looking. Yeah. Yeah. One of the researchers in my lab actually has some SEM pictures of ice, which she does research deforming ice. So um, they're hanging over her couch in her living room. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Ice the mineral, right? Is that what we're talking about? Exactly. That's the one. (laughs) Uh, That's super awesome. Um, I think we were talking a little before the show and, you know, John and I both have backgrounds in meteorology and it's really obvious that, you know, meteorological research, you know, you take pictures of storms all the time and that is basically art and a lot of students will earn a lot of money doing that. So it's cool to see figures being used as art too, because it's not something you think about. I mean, it's something John thinks about because he's a figure nerd, but (laughs) 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 like what kind of figures wind up being in these exhibitions? Um, So a figure that that I actually showed in the session at AGU that John and I co-chaired when I was talking about research as art was one from um, a seismology paper where they were looking at the lithosphere asthenosphere boundary in New Zealand. Um, and so it was just a seismic image of the lithosphere asthenosphere boundary, and it looked like um, some sort of painting if you took off all of the labels. <laughs> um, last year, we had someone um, submit a figure that showed the predictability of Indian monsoons. Um, which really just looks like an impressionist painting. <laughs> <laughs> Good old spaghetti plots. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. I never think of that because I just feel, you know, just like we were talking about, thin sections are just little pictures or like pictures of tornadoes or storms are normal pictures. But the figure thing, like I was really interested in that when I first found out what you did because that's 
<laughs> something I never thought of. It's really awesome. And the, I will say that the, um, the Seismic Sound Lab website, you can see how figures are art on there. That's really cool. Yeah, last year, actually, um, we had a submission from uh, my advisor, Ben Holtzman, who oh, nice. is running that. So he made a, a video of the earthquakes during the Nepal earthquake sequence last mm-hmm. year. Oh, awesome. With some sounds associated. Yeah, that is that's super cool. And we'll link that into the show notes, obviously. Um, I spent a lot of time on that website today, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> so are you seeing more? I mean, I know that in the literature, we've seen more sonification of data. And even in some talks that we've had, uh, people coming through giving colloquiums here, we've had more people sonifying seismograms or sonifying infrasound data, that kind of thing. Uh are you seeing more and more of that kind of mixed media art in the exhibition now? Um, so we're trying to get people to do a little bit more of that. It's This is our third year doing it, so I think we're going to try to really push that as an option. I think a lot of people didn't really realize that we would be willing to set it up to have that kind of uh, submissions. So hopefully we'll get some more this year. Sorry, this is going back to uh, when are you going to have a interpretive dance uh, section to it as well? <laughs> I'll just say I'm not going to be the one doing that. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking about the Earth's magnetic field. I've got some ideas about, you know, switching polarities. <laughs> you have an open invitation, Shannon. Okay, excellent, excellent. <laughs> so this is one thing that it seems like I, I think it's a cool idea, and I think a lot of graduate students would probably think it's a cool idea. But I could see some uh, tenured faculty or maybe non-tenured faculty that are like, ah, I'm, you know, they're crazy busy pulling their hair out anyway, not really getting involved with something like this because it does take time. So did you have a lot of people get involved instantly or did you have to kind of poke and prod people a little bit? And then once they got involved, they saw that this was a really incredible way to share their science. Um, So I'm really lucky to work at the... um, institute that I work at it's I always say that it's like summer science camp (laughs) Um, (laughs) so yeah so everyone's really busy but (laughs) I think that everyone tends to have a little bit of like an openness to this kind of thing um it was actually kind of surprising as soon as we announced the first uh research as art exhibit we just got kind of an influx and a lot of them were from uh kind of the older uh people at Lamont who were just really excited about doing this no <laughs> so, kidding yeah wow. I was kind of surprised oh that is super cool yeah um, um yeah no but we've actually had um several people come up to us after the exhibits and tell us that they had really never thought of their research that way and that now they were going back and thinking through physic figures that they were making for their upcoming papers, and they like were kind of rethinking how to present the data in a more attractive way. <laughs> and we're always pushing that on this show, so <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. Yeah, it actually sounds like something that a while back we interviewed Phoebe Cohen, mm-hmm. and it sounds like something that uh, somebody like that could do a lot with because. There's a lot of cool imagery there, but I guess pretty much any geoscience field, like Shannon pointed out, whether it's a normal picture, like of a tornado or not, there's some kind of imagery or some kind of plot. I, I could see it being a little hard to take, you know, normal XY scatter plot 
and turn it into art, but I think you could probably do it. Yeah, we've had some really cool submissions, actually, that are scatter plots with uh, different... I think we had one that was uh, flow cytometry, um, and it was, like, the different types of cells were uh, colored in different ways, and it, it was really awesome looking. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I don't know if I could get an apparent polar wander path to look cool, but <laughs> I'm going to try now. <laughs> Well, you know, you might have to use something other than Excel to make that plot. Oh, I knew it was coming. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that pains me. (laughs) (laughs) Not you too. Oh, man. I'm out of here. (laughs) Look, I just do paleo magic. I don't need your fancy computer program. (laughs) So... You've talked about some of your favorite examples, but what were some of the the hard things getting this organized and getting an event like this off the ground? Because I can imagine it's quite a bit of work. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think in terms of the submissions, one of the more difficult things at the beginning was really communicating to people the level that we wanted the figures to be submitted. Um, So we had a couple of people submit figures that were already in papers and were just like very data-oriented figures with uh, basically a figure caption underneath. Um, So we really aim to have people submit a figure that is pretty accessible with a caption that someone who really knows nothing about that field would be able to understand. So that's a really good way for our community to learn about the research that other people are doing. Um, So that was a challenge. I think that we're starting to get that message across a little bit better. Um, (laughs) Definitely um, the first year we had some challenges just in terms of the organization. Um, I was uh, running it with just one other graduate student, uh, Kyle Frischhorn. And uh, we were on the day of the event, we were running back and forth trying to set up all of these framed figures. Um, and the frames that we had bought had these really sharp ends on the back. So oh, no. <laughs> we got all of the figures set up and uh, or to the room that we were having the exhibit and turned them over. And they all had this brown gunk on the oh. back. <laughs> Turned out that uh, while we were carrying the figures, they had been stabbing into our hands. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so we decided that we uh, needed to get some more help. So now we do it with more people. <laughs> Man, that yeah. is really bleeding for your art. That's exactly. Impressive. Yeah, I really put uh, blood, sweat, and tears into yeah, that. <laughs> quite literally. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, and you had to be on some kind of uh, you know sleep-deprived, caffeine-driven, in some kind of haze to just <laughs> keep carrying these figures. Bleeding. Isn't that exactly. how we do science? That's true. <laughs> Just in general, I feel like. Um, so you actually do, you know, like frame these and like you said, show them as an art gallery. Maybe not with little light hanging over it and people sipping wine. Or maybe, <laughs> We do have wine. So. We do have wine. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly beer, but also some wine. <laughs> so these are, I mean, you get them printed pretty large, right? Yeah. So um, we usually use a poster plotter to print them and then uh, we frame them in frames that we bought online so it's actually pretty easy to do just kind of have to put a little bit of forethought but it's not that difficult once you have a space i know one of my friends when she graduated got uh she did uh meteorites 
And so she looked at them, you know, under the microscope, and they were super awesome because they have really pretty igneous minerals, not sedimentary minerals that are ugly. And uh, <laughs> that's what her friends, like her lab friends, got together, and they got a canvas of, like, her favorite meteorite thin section, you know. And so that was, like, her going away present, and it was the coolest thing ever. And, I mean, this was quite a while ago, but how awesome is that, that, you know, this art thing is a real deal. It's not just... <laughs> you know this fun thing that we do it's neat that other people can see that too because yeah research seems really not accessible to people who aren't you know who aren't scientists so this is such a great way to bring it to everyone I mean do you have a lot of people that attend that are just you know general public or um so we don't usually or for the last couple of years we haven't um I think that we're trying to think of ways that we can do that a little bit better it's a little hard um our campus is pretty remote um so it's a little hard to get people to come um who aren't already there working but um, I know that there are some other schools that are doing a similar type of thing that are also trying to get the general public involved a little bit more um, so de that's definitely something that I think we aspire to. I think it's a really good way to get the general public excited about the research that we're doing. Right, exactly. I can even see it be really great, though, just as an intra-institution thing, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people here that I don't know what they do, or I have some vague idea that it's something with bugs, but I really don't understand <laughs> any of it. Uh, <laughs> so it, I think it would be really valuable just to know what the people around you are doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like um, I was saying, we have people who are studying biology and monsoons, which is very far removed from earthquake science, which is what I'm focused on. So it's always really exciting to see what they're up to. Um, do you think, what are the, what is the breakdown of, you know, the people, are most of these thin section photos or, you know, did it start out just as that and now it's getting bigger or... I was actually surprised we haven't gotten so many thin section photos submitted. Um, but that's the easy one. <laughs> that's what I would think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We've had a lot of people submitting graphs and interesting maps, um, things like that. Um, we had one of my favorite submissions was a picture of a dinoflagellate. Um, so not a thin section, but still a microscope image. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there's a pretty wide range of things that people submit once they um, kind of start to think about their research that way. That's cool. Dinoflagellates are really weird looking. I urge you to look them up if you don't know what they are. <laughs> Very scary. I was going to say, we'll put a link in the show notes, but you should probably also explain for the non-initiated slash geophysicists. Oh, what a dinoflagellate is? Okay, so as I understand it from my reaching back into paleo, um, there are these little things that swim around, um, you know, plankton, basically. Um, but some of them do live in freshwater, and they have these weird little whips and stuff on them. I mean, they're these tiny little swimming guys, but some of them have these strange little means of locomotion, and they're just aliens in the water is basically how I sum that up. <laughs> <laughs> aliens in the water they do they swim around in the water column and they're these tiny tiny little things and some of them have all these weird looking leg things and then these weird whip things that they use to swim around with and yeah really strange they're all you know little special snowflakes though because there's thousands and thousands of them <laughs> but not unique 
That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anna, have you submitted anything to the competition since you've been busy doing it? Have you submitted any of your research? <clears throat> um, I actually haven't, but this year I've been busy doing some microstructure work on uh, my own samples, so I think I might submit something this year. <laughs> Wow! So, yeah, that now that work. I have now that I have some um, microscope images. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! All that work, and yeah, you haven't even gotten to like print your own out really big and hang it above your couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, do people take the prints afterwards and you know hang them in their office or whatever? Um, so we actually have been keeping them in the graduate student uh, lounge at Lamont, so we're trying to use them as decoration there. <laughs> Oh, great. See, I could see this evolving. We have a really active undergrad uh, group here, the Geology Club. And um, I could see this turning into like a fundraiser or something, you know, having people submit their stuff and, you know, the school prints it off for free and then you can have people, you know, raffle them off or something. I think that would be super cool. Yeah, I think that would be amazing. Uh, Yeah. I mean, not sedimentary rocks, obviously, but... (laughs) Pretty Some rock. nice deformed olive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna yeah, put I a think... link in the show notes to olivine in cross polarized light because it's just beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get this across enough. I got so excited when I got to actually teach that instead of quartz. But... Well, you know, you, you were too hard on quartz because you get all that kind of undulating extinction. See, I remember a little bit of mineralogy. <laughs> oh, <whoa. laughs> way to pull that one out. <laughs> That's even I didn't caused even have to open sc- Wikipedia for that. Oh. <laughs> Burn. Uh, that's even caused by squeezing. I'm sure that's why you remember it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, there are some cool quartz textures. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so is there anything else that you wanted to, uh, to tell us about in terms of outreach, research as art, any of the things that we've talked about? Um, I think that that covered a lot of it, actually. <laughs> So the last time I think that we had a guest on, we asked him this question, and I kind of liked it. And it was, what tools or tips do you find useful for your everyday life or work? You know, like what one thing are you great at or this one thing that you have to have to do your job? What are some of those kind of items? Um, so I would say I probably use MATLAB the most. <laughs> um, that has definitely been a recent thing since I started grad school. Um, so yeah, that's, that's been pretty useful for me. Um, I always like to have my planner, um, and a notebook on the side to jot down those ideas that come to you when you're not expecting them. Uh, when you say planner, I have to stop you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because are you talking about an analog pen and paper planner? So I used to do that. Now I try now I keep it mostly on (laughs) a Google calendar, but I still have a to-do list in my uh, little notebook (laughs) because I really like crossing things off. Oh yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I know we've had email conversations about bullet journals because I'm a massive fan. I remember. (laughs) Yes, definitely. When we were planning the show, Shannon said she had to consult her planner and pulled out this big paper thing and I called it her hipster PDA. (laughs) Love it. So painful, so painful. <laughs> so, let's see where are we at. Anything else? <laughs> so, MATLAB planner, non-digital. Yes, I MATLAB, would... but not using the jet color scale. I hate the green. <laughs> <laughs> it's like invisible to PowerPoints. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially if you put it on a green background, because yeah, seen that. Uh, <laughs> so cool. I don't know why you would plot data that you have worked so hard to collect in an invisible color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I have a feeling I'm going to be throwing that same phrase out when I see some class presentations this semester. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> you know, the the MATLAB people actually came here. I think it was last week. And gave a little presentation on some of the new stuff in MATLAB and how they've really improved things like default color schemes. And they're trying to make the plots look a lot better in MATLAB uh, R2015, just like when you do plot. So it was interesting, but then they showed this map and they were really excited about their mapping toolkit. And they showed an example plotting earthquakes. And some of those, you know, if you plot all the earthquakes since 1900, you can make a beautiful plot. But they said, okay, we're gonna plot them. We're going to color them by magnitude which is fine. I guess I would color them by depth or something, but okay. And the marker symbol was the little like bubble push pin thing. <laughs> and you can't, you can change it to any bitmap file, but you can't make it just like a point with variable size. It was, Ooh. it was quite a fail. So no, one painful. step, two steps forward, maybe one step back. So, But you were on the front row to tell them what they were doing wrong, right? No. <laughs> I know you love your MATLAB too. You know, I would rather people use something that's programmatic based, MATLAB, Python, R, something other than an accounting program. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, moving on. <laughs> Uh, so we've put some examples of this research's art uh, into the show notes. Um, I also included some cool biology stuff that is researchers' jewelry as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'll just let people go click on those links and obviously some olivine under the microscope as well. Yeah, and actually we should put that uh, – you remember the pottery that was from Coors? <gasps> yes, yes. Yes, we should put that uh, in the show notes yep. as well, because I think it would be really cool if, as re- in your research is art thing, you had people doing actual physical objects, too. Yeah, that uh, sounds really interesting. Uh, I can also really send you some links of other schools that do similar programs. Oh, that's excellent. Yep. Well, unless there's anything else, I think it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Yay! Fun Paper Friday! <laughs> <laughs> Did We've you been bring running... your cowbell? Hannah, we, we have to have a cowbell. I was hoping that you would have brought yours. <laughs> I know I'm recording in my office and I don't keep the cowbell handy, but I need to. <laughs> so we've been running really long the last few episodes. We almost didn't get last month's in uh, under our <laughs> under our data cap for our hosting service. So we're going to try to keep them a little bit shorter. But this week, Hannah picked a paper for us. That was called Eye Tracking Students' Attention to PowerPoint Photographs in a Science Education Setting. And PowerPoint is another one that we could go on about, well, have gone on about, <laughs> like the jet color map. <laughs> you just got to let it go, man. Just let it go. <laughs> Though the plots in this are in Excel. You can tell by their default gray background. Uh, I was, it was a little painful that they were writing a paper about <laughs> using images and presentations. <laughs> Did hey, not I really. It fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally okay with this. It looked familiar, comfortable for me. 
So this um, was in the Journal of Science Education and Technology and was really about how students spend their time looking at slides. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the paper actually was focusing on, um, on presentations that students can watch on their own time. So there are two different ways that that happens in one um, format. They just read through the presentation and in another format, they have a voiceover. Um, so the paper was really looking at how students focus on different parts of the slide. So the text versus the images. Um, when you have images that are directly related to what's written on the slide, um, so that would be a complementary image, or images that are just there to look pretty, um, so not really related to what the content is on the slide, so a decorative image. Um, so yeah, so they... Um, so, it, so they found that people actually really focus mostly on images that are related to the content that they're uh, hearing. So that's a little bit reassuring for all of us who, <laughs> yes. who try to get people to focus on the important parts of our presentations. <laughs> uh, yes, I was also super happy about that, actually. <laughs> and I actually know, so they talked about that image classification scheme that you said, you know, the decorative images and the complementary images and explanatory images. And I actually never had thought about really in scientific papers when you write them, you always have to have a reference to every figure and they're in order. You know, you talk about this figure one, talk about this figure two. Whereas in a textbook, these decorative images don't even have captions. They're just, you know, there on the page. And then the explanatory photographs are the illustrative photographs have a caption, but they're never mentioned in the text, which seems like total sacrilege from an academic writing standpoint. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, I thought so they used eye tracking and just watched people's gaze. And it was really interesting to see that in some of the uh, one of the figures, figure one, people actually started looking at the bullet points before they went back up and looked at the title, which was a little shocking to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I was also interested that um, even for the complementary figures, so the ones that were related to the text, people actually did spend a lot of time um, reading the text, even when someone was talking about the slide um, over, over it. So that actually... Um, to me, when I'm like trying to put together a presentation for a class, um, I usually try to avoid having too much text. And part of the reason is that when I'm talking about the figures that are on my slide, I would rather people not be reading too much. <laughs> um, so th I think that, that in, in a lot of cases, people miss um, what you're saying when they're trying to read, um, read what you've written on the slide. So I get dinged for that all the time in my reviews in classes because my slides are very just picture intensive and it's because of what you just said and also because I want students to come to class. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> like you shouldn't get to just read the slide and then never come to class um, and that's funny. But going back to figure one, um, what John just said, and I thought that was interesting because I set up a lot of my slides like this because it's obviously a default in PowerPoint. Um, but I always wondered whether I wanted to put my text on the left or the right. And it seems like if the text were on the right, you'd read the title first, just because of our left to rightness, I guess. Um, I never 
put that together or even thought about it until looking at that figure. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, the, the Michael Alley art of our craft of scientific presentation approach says that you should have one complete sentence at the top of your slide uh, with no punctuation and then no other text. Ooh. Or yeah. minimum, or sorry, maximum, just a few other words. But that's something I'd be really interested to see the eye tracking on uh, slides that use that kind of methodology, because that's what I try to use. And I have no idea when I give an AGU talk, eye trackers don't work through, you know, people that are sleeping, closed eyelids. <laughs> um, I will say that as a poor graduate student, I participated in an eye tracking psychology experiment. <laughs> um, and it was really weird because they basically put your head in this um, clockwork orange type device. <laughs> and like, you can't, you can't move your face because then the eye tracking software can't see your eyes, you know. And so you're literally like you have your head cupped in this thing and there's a like a clamp that goes on your forehead and it was super uncomfortable. That's all I wanted to <laughs> to add to eye tracking software. <laughs> well, one can only hope that our students aren't that uncomfortable when they're listening to us talking. <laughs> they might feel so like it. True. But... <laughs> yeah. This podcast might feel like that to some people, too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Um, this is really cool to see because, I mean, it's something that, you know, we talk so much on this show about how you set up a figure and how you set up a presentation and what you should do. And I feel like this sort of puts some quantitativeness to our ranting about <laughs> presentations. Yeah, and maybe we should spend a little bit more time thinking about slide layout, even if it's for, you know, an intro geology class that you're throwing the slides together at the last minute before you have to go give a lecture because that's how things happen. <laughs> it's academia. It seems like it's something that's really worth thinking about, maybe even just something like the left to right layout, like Shannon it, pointed out. Right, exactly. Um, I'm certainly going to review my slides for my class tomorrow to see how that how this lines <laughs> up with them now. <laughs> you know, if you teach multiple sec sections, this sounds like a perfect opportunity to do an A-B test. Oh, oh, that's good. That's a good idea. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna put that into. I'm gonna put that into effect now. Have a follow up. And you know, all, all the my... HR people should have tuned out a little while back. We are not experimenting <laughs> on students. <laughs> no, so true. <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, in geology departments, we rarely have to sign those human testing forms. I know. Yeah, I said that's why I just work on rocks. That IRB business. That's a lot of. That's a lot of work. <laughs> oh my. So. <laughs> Well, that's a pretty great Fun Paper Friday, and uh, I know we've got some more suggestions from listeners and more in store, but if you have a Fun Paper Friday suggestion or anything else you'd like us to talk about, people you'd like to hear from, or feedback, things that we got wrong, because I'm sure there's something, uh, <laughs> you can send it to us. Shannon, how can they do that? Uh, well, if it's about John, you can send it to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, as always, you can find us on the Twitter sphere at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And Hannah, where would you like to be found on the internet? Or would you? <laughs> <laughs> I actually am not super active on Twitter. Don't don't yell at me, John. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> but you can come check out my website that John will have linked in the show notes. Right. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. 
Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.